to grab your uh, pew Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We've been slowly working our way through uh, the book of Acts, and we are in uh, chapter 17 this morning, starting in verse 16. I want to jump right in. There's a lot for us to uh, talk about, I think, and so let's stand if you're, as you're able for the reading of God's Word. I'll start in verse 16, and I'll read through verse uh, 33. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Verse 29 Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think, think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you because we need your truth. We need your reality to speak into our lives. And so in these moments, would you help us to hear and help us to seek you and to know you? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. As I said a moment ago, we've been uh, looking at the uh, book of Acts, and uh, it's a story, or it's a book about what Jesus is doing from heaven, his rule and reign from heaven, and how he is establishing his church. We've seen some passages where uh, Peter, for example, will get up and preach, and the last thing we see at the end of that passage is you know, thousands put their faith in Christ. And then we'll read passages like we saw last week where uh, Luke, the author of Acts, gives us snapshots 
Uh, these are people, real people, from different backgrounds, who were engaged with the gospel and put their faith in Christ. We saw Lydia. We saw a slave girl. We saw the Philippian jailer last week. These three uh, stories, these three snapshots. While we had a lot of information about who they were, um, sometimes we get to spots where it's just, in, in essence, Luke is saying the gospel was preached and they became Christians. And we don't get a lot of, well, what did they say? I mean, what did they, how did they talk about the gospel? How did they talk about the good news? Um, and sometimes we don't get why they're talking about the gospel or the good news. What, what motivated them? What uh, pushes these uh, men and, and women to go and talk about the faith? Well, I feel like with this passage here, we get snippets of that. We get why Paul is going out, and we get a little bit more information, maybe more specifically, about what is being said, what is being communicated about the truth of the gospel, how people are being engaged uh, with the gospel. And so three questions I want to ask of this passage to serve as our outline. First I want to ask is, why does Paul care? Why does he care uh, to engage and spread uh, the gospel? Uh, who does Paul talk to? That, that, what are the type of people that he's talking to? And then how does that have import or relevance to the type of people that we may be engaged with here? And then how does Paul talk about God? How does he talk about the good news? How does he talk about uh, the gospel? And, and what does it mean for us? How does it help us? So why does Paul care? In the beginning of this passage, Paul is waiting, which seems kind of weird. Seems kind of weird to me. Paul is always going and doing. Things are always happening to him. Now he's kind of waiting. He's waiting for some of his missionary buddies uh, to catch up with him for reasons we don't need to go into. And he's, it's almost like Luke is telling us he's kind of playing the tourist here in Athens, seeing the sights and sounds of this city. This is a huge city. This is a beautiful city. This is a rich city. Uh, imagine a thriving university town, and you get maybe a little bit of what Athens is like. They've survived many hostilities. They have a, a, a cultural richness that's about them. Uh, economically, they're doing well. Intellectually, they, were do, they are doing very well, as we'll see here uh, in a moment. And so here's Paul walking the streets, so to speak, playing uh, the tourists and seeing things all around him. And what we see that's striking there is in verse uh, 16, where it says that Paul says the city was full of idols. That's what Paul sees. He sees a city full of idols. That word in the Greek is interesting. It's nowhere else in the New Testament. It's nowhere else really in the Bible. Uh, it's not really used at all in Greek literature. But the idea that it's conveying, the idea that, that Luke is conveying to us, is that Paul is seeing a city smothered or swamped with idols. Everywhere Paul looks, he sees these idols. And it's captured the hearts and minds of the city. For example, he would see temples and shrines and statues and altars. It's said that there is this huge statue of the Greek goddess Athena that stands, and you can see it from some 40 miles away. Strong presence in this city. He would see the likes of Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, and the like. These statues, these temples and shrines and all the like. And you can imagine, I mean, if we were a tourist there with Paul seeing this, we would ask ourselves, are these things beautiful? In the sense of they're impressive, um, they're artistic, 
They're imaginative, all they alike. And yes, I guess you could say they were impressive, but this is not what Paul walks away with. Again, back to verse 16, it says that Paul was greatly distressed, or he was provoked, as some translations say. It's not necessarily the picture of anger, but he's looking at these idols and they're saying they do nothing for the glory of God. And so Paul walks away from this, taking this all in, provoked, if you will. There's a sense in which there's a it's not a, a flash-in-the-pan kind of reaction, but it's a settled reaction to what he's seeing. In the Old Testament, uh, it's used in the context of God's reaction to idolatry. Compare what Paul's experiencing here to God's reaction to idolatry in the Old Testament. Classic example, Moses is up on the mount. God is giving him the, the Ten Commandments, and they've been talking about uh, all these things. And Moses walks down, and he gets to the camp of the Israelites who have been waiting on him. And what have they done? They've taken all their gold, they've melted it down, they've created this golden calf. And God responds with anger at this false worship. God is provoked, if you will, at what the Israelites are doing. Scripture sometimes calls this emotion uh, the jealousy of God. God's jealousy in Exodus thirty four fourteen, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Think about it uh, maybe like this. Think about a marriage relationship. It's an exclusive relationship. If a third party enters into that relationship in an inappropriate way, the one partner, the one spouse that's being pushed out is going to respond how? They're going to be jealous. That is a a exclusive relationship. It's a special relationship. And that's how God sees his people in relationship to him. It's a special relationship, and it's exclusive relationship. It's why God calls himself a jealous God. He desires all of us. Maybe think about it from this perspective. Uh, here is Paul in Athens, and his spirit is provoked. Uh, if you will, it's distressed at all these idols around him. And in that culture, in that time, there was this general mentality that everybody had their own God, if you will, lowercase g. If you were from Ephesus, you worshiped the God of Ephesus. If you were from Athens, you worshiped that God of Athens. If you were a farmer, you had your God. If you were a businessman, you had that God, so on and so forth. Everybody had these individual gods that they worshiped. And so if you were from Ephesus, you would never approach um, somebody from Athens and say, hey, you need to worship my God. Uh, the, 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 God the guy with his, the fisherman who has his God is never going to approach the, the businessman and, say, and try and talk him into that. It just wouldn't happen. Everybody had their, these all small territorial gods. And Paul sees this, and his spirit is provoked because he knows reality. He knows that there are not many gods, but there is one true God that's created all things and all people, that sovereignly watches over the universe. He is the one worthy, and he alone is worthy of our worship. And this is why Paul is provoked or distressed or has this kind of negative response. But that response doesn't leave him there. It moves him out in a constructive way, in a positive way. It moves him into the marketplace Let's think of more a moment of who he 
talk to. In verse 17, his response is to go. So we reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. It's Paul's MO to go into the synagogue. Goes into a new city, goes to a new place. He goes to um, his people, if you will, and talks about the God of the Old Testament. But here, Luke tells us that he also went into the marketplace. When you think about a marketplace, don't think about the farmer's market down here at the corner that nobody really goes to, okay? Think about the marketplace as the hub of urban life, of culture and society. There's no internet there. There's no public papers. If you needed to find out what's going on, you went to the marketplace. If you needed to connect with somebody, you went to the marketplace. Sure, that you, there's commerce going on there. There's, there's buying and the selling of things going on there. But it's also a place of connection, of, 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 of talking to one another, of, of being known and knowing other people. And in this park marketplace, Paul does what he reasoned there. He talks about the gospel there. Don't imagine him so much finding a corner and uh, sitting on the top of his tailgate and just starts street preaching and starts, you know, talking out loud to people. And maybe some people will listen. But he's engaging with people. He's talking about their ideas. He's debating with them. It's almost a picture of he's, he's coming to understand their ideas, their perspective, their beliefs, and working inside those beliefs to bring about the inconsistencies that are there. Paul is there reasoning there in the marketplace. In verse 18, we see that he's engaged with two particular types of people, uh, Epicureans and Stoics. Let me describe these two philosophies very briefly. By briefly, I mean just a couple of sentences. Epicureans had a worldview that generally looked like this. They said, this life is all that there is, okay? There's no afterlife. There's no other world. When we die, that's it. There's just, it's just gone. And so whatever you want to do, do it. That should be your purpose. That should be the thing that drives you. Things that are uncomfortable, difficult, hard, scary, fearful, suffering, avoid those things as much as possible because you only get one go around. This is it. And certainly we see this in our own culture today. Uh, Do what you want to do, Uh, even if it pushes the the moral boundaries of things. If it's uncomfortable or awkward, you can avoid those things. Nobody's going to give you a hard time about that. And then you had another group of philosophers who were called Stoics. And Stoics generally taught like this and live like this, they said that life is filled with good things and life is filled with bad things. Great things are going to happen to you. Bad things are going to happen to you. Okay? You, you can't avoid it. But when the bad things happen to you, you can decide how you're going to respond to those things. You do have um, some import or some control there, so to speak, how you're going to respond. You can't control the bad things that happen to you. But when bad things do happen to you, you need to be strong. You need to grin and bear it. You need to maybe turn that uh, hardship into an opportunity. This was the stoic approach uh, to life, philosophy of life, and we see it today. Uh, The attitude of, you know, I'm just going to grin and bear it. I don't need other people in my life. I can handle it. I can make it on my own now jump down to verse 22. Paul is, is with these group of philosophers and Stoics and Epicureans, and he says this to him. He says in passing almost, I see that you are very religious. 
Now, we read that phrase, we see Paul saying that, and we think, well, yeah, that's the Bible. And they had all kinds of superstitions, all kinds of lowercase g gods that were going on there, all kinds of, of worldviews and explanations, and we think that's not true of us today. In fact, it seems like today it's, we're more secular. Uh, we're not as religious. We're not as a spiritual people. And I want to say, yes, maybe, if you think about it in the sense of more people um, joining a, f- a formal religious organization, but we all, all of us are religious people in the sense that all of us, we all have a faith belief that drives how we live. Whether you are part of a formal religion or not part of a formal religion, there is an f- underlying faith belief system that we all have. Sometimes it's called a religion, sometimes it's called a worldview. A faith belief is something that answers the big questions of life. Okay? Stick with me for a moment. Faith beliefs answer the big question of life. How did I get here? What's the problem? How is the problem to be fixed? Where are we going? What's the purpose of life? What happens after you die? How do you get there? All the, the answers to those kinds of questions are faith beliefs. They're answers to that, that is your worldview. That's how you perceive the world. Some of us think through those things very well, and some of them just have, of us have rough answers in the back of our heads. None of those faith beliefs can be proven. You can support them with your uh, reasoning and ideas, but you can't prove them in an absolute way. You can't prove them in a laboratory. You can't prove them in a, test, in, a, in a test tube, so to speak. That's why they're called faith beliefs. There's a faith attached to those beliefs because they cannot be proven absolutely, fully, completely. In essence, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm betting my life on these things. Say you, you come in contact with an atheist, somebody that does not believe in God, doesn't believe in, in a higher power. And you ask them, well, why do you believe? And they say, well, I'm not a part of a religion. I'm not part of an organization. I believe because I've reasoned these things out. I'm using my reason. I'm using my intellect. I use my mind to figure this out. And that's what I believe. I believe there isn't a God. I don't believe there is an afterlife. And there's no way that they can prove that there's no God. There's no way in an absolute way they can prove that there's no afterlife. What they're confessing to believe about God or their expression of a denial of God, that is a faith belief because they're in effect saying, I'm betting my life on this. I'm betting my life on the fact that there is no God, that he won't hold me accountable, and there is no afterlife. It's a faith belief. And this is why I bring that up for us because we all have faith beliefs, whether we call ourselves Christian or we call ourselves non-Christian or we don't profess any kind of religious belief at all. We all have a faith belief belief. And sometimes we think about our day and our age, and we think it's so hard to talk about Jesus with other people because they, they, they don't have the categories, or they don't have the understanding, or they don't have the interest. And there's so much doubt, there's so much skepticism that goes on in the culture that we live and breathe in. But think about Paul's time. Think about who Paul is talking to in the marketplace. He's talking to, to men and women who are very skeptical of Christianity, very skeptical of the resurrection, very skeptical of, of life after death. 
And this is where the church was born into. This is what they entered into. All that to say is the early church was difficult for them to preach the gospel. At the end of this passage, it's not like Paul preached the gospel and thousands and the whole city was converted. We don't read about that at all. It was difficult then, just like it was difficult for us today to talk to some people about the truth claims of Christianity. Well, what did Paul say in this marketplace? The last point, number three. Here's Paul in this marketplace, and he's engaged with these people. And it's like he gets this invitation by a a select few, this group of elites that are there, and they say, we like what you have to say. You haven't persuaded us, but we find it interesting. And so we want you to come to our special place, this Areopagus place. And this was a place, a gathering of the elite of the elite, okay? Paul is a very educated man. Uh, He comes from a very respected background, and he is very comfortable moving into these circles and talking to them about the truth claims of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. And there is a vast richness in this passage of what we could go into and what we could pull out and dig into and go into in a deeper way. But what I want to look at and what Paul does in his speech to this Areopagus is Paul, and see how Paul, what Paul is doing, he's giving them a picture of a big God, a big God that rules over this universe. In verse 23, for example, he says, For I've walked around, Paul saying to this group, and I look carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And then he says, So you are ignorant of the very things that you worship. In verse 24 and 25, he talks about how God is bigger than anything they could ever imagine. Because why? Because he created all things. We didn't create God, but he has created all things. He's created everything. And because he's created everything, nobody is dependent upon him. He is self-sustaining, self-governing. He is completely happy with or without us. It leads into Paul talking about God's sovereignty. Not only has he created all things, but he's created all nations. He's marked out and he's appointed their boundaries and their, their life cycles, so to speak, and who they are. He has appointed all those things. What Paul is trying to communicate is that God is bigger than anything you could imagine, anything you can build, anything you can put together. He doesn't need anybody. In verse 27, Paul says that God did this. Why? So that perhaps we would seek him, that we'd reach out to him, that we would find him. Paul goes into to greater depth on this in, in Romans chapter 1, how God can be known by all people, regardless of their background, simply because of what's been created. And Paul's laying out this vision of God that's enormous. It's bigger and different from anything they've ever experienced before. And in this speech, if you will, he's trying to appeal to their minds and he's trying to appeal to their hearts. He's trying to get to their minds and he's trying to get to their hearts. He goes after their minds when he talks about God like this. He says, I'm not going to initially, I don't need to prove to you that God already exists, but what I want to do is prove that you already know that he exists. For example, in verse 28, he's quoting from one of their sources. He's quoting from their literature, the things that they look to that gives them input, import on what they believe. 
And he says, we, and he's quoting from their resource, he says, we are his offspring. It's like Paul is saying, this is what you believe about God. This is what you know to be true about God. You yourselves say that God created us. How is it that you can go on and say that we can create gods, that we can create these things to worship? What Paul does is ingenious because he understands their philosophy. He understands their worldview. He understands how they're answering those big questions of life. And he goes and quotes their sources, and then he uses those sources to say, you're being inconsistent. You're not, what you're saying, you say this, but this is what you're doing. He points out those inconsistencies as, as a way to point them to the gospel. The other thing he does is he also goes after their hearts. In verse 26, he talks about God has made all of the nations. So now as he created the nations, but he's appointed or marked out their boundaries, so to speak. And the key on that phrase that Mark uses, that Paul uses, he marked out. He marked out means to assign. It means to designate. It means to appoint. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 13, 48, when it says, it's the, he says, those who have been de- designated to eternal life became believers that were designated. In other words, Paul is talking about, he's saying that God has foreordained the nations. God is big. He's enormous. He's created all things. He's completely sovereign. But it doesn't mean that he lives at a, lives at a distance from us, but he's close. He's personal. He has made plans for us as a people and us as his people. There's a closeness. There's an intimacy. He wants to be our God, and he has plans for us. Everything is under his control. Let me close with this. Maybe you know people, or maybe you sit there yourself and you think, God has a plan. God has foreordained things. God is in control of things like that. And for some of us, that makes us uncomfortable. I don't know if I like that. I like that idea in general on paper. As long as his plans for me agree with my plans for myself. Which is why we're so anxious all the time. It's why we're fearful. It's why we feel alone. God, are you going to work things out according to my expectations According to my plans, according to my values, are you going to act? And Paul is appealing to this crowd and he's saying, there is a God that's bigger than you could ever imagine. And not only is he big and enormous and sovereign, he's close and he's personal. And we can trust him. We can trust his plans for our lives. Back in the 50s, a woman named Elizabeth Elliot went with her husband, Jim Elliott, to the mission field of South America, Ecuador. And they served there for a bit of time. And after she had finished this calling, so to speak, this one part of her life serving there as a missionary, she was invited to speak at a, to a group of college students, Christian college students. Not necessarily a missions conference, but a big Christian gathering of college-age folks, and she was asked to just to share her testimony about her time on the mission field, and she shared with the audience, these college students, how one night 
uh, her and her husband and the other missionaries that were there with them. They were out on the field, and they were having a, they were praising God. They were praying to God. They were worshiping God, particularly focusing on how they can trust God's plan for their lives. The next day, Jim and some other men encounter these tribal Amazonian tribal men, and they're speared to death. They're killed. Killed for being obedient. Killed for trying to reach out to them. And they were speared to death. And Elizabeth got up and continued on with the story. And she asked the, the audience this. What does that do to your faith? Does your faith collapse at that point? If it doesn't, then it was not resting on God himself. Was it her plan that her husband would be killed? Be speared to death while serving the Lord? Certainly not. And sometimes we go to God and we, God, we, I have this plan. I have this thing that I want you to accomplish and to do in my life. And we get so consumed with that. When that collapses, it ruins everything about us. And Paul in this passage is saying that God is far more big and powerful and sovereign than you could ever imagine. And at the same time, he is close. He is loving. He is gracious. He is there. And he invites us to trust his plan, to trust his word, to trust in his son. It's far richer. It's far more personal. It's far more loving than anything we could ever expect. And the question for us is, are we willing to surrender our plans, our expectations, our wants, our desires to know him like this? And you know why we can trust him? Why we can trust his plans? Is what Paul ends with, resurrection. He knows who you are. He knows what you've done. He knows what you think. He knows your attitude right now. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. And he says, I still love you. He says, I still want you. So much that I'm going to give up my son. And we can look at that son who gave his life for us and say, if you did that for me, I can trust you. I can trust your plan because I know you love me. You gave me something I didn't deserve and I didn't earn. And you did it because you thought about me. Let's go to God and let's pray to him. Father, we come to you. And we have our plans. We have our ideas. And we put you in a box. We make you out to be smaller than we could ever uh, imagine you really are. Would you forgive us of that? Would you help us to see the grandeur and the beauty, the enormity of all that you are? We have a small vision. Would you increase our vision? We have a small faith. Would you enlarge our faith by helping us to see how big and majestic and righteous and holy and gracious and loving and powerful you are? And help us to trust you. Help us to trust you with the plans of our lives, our expectations, and our disappointments. Help us to be a people who truly pray that our will be done, 
but your will be done. We ask this because you give us resurrection. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.